0: Tonight I'm re-preaching a sermon that I've preached before, actually. A few years ago, we had a Good Friday service. Uh, I said this was our first open air, but I guess if you count that Good Friday in our driveway in Market Hill, St. George, a few years ago, this would be our second open air service. And Anyhow, that one Good Friday a couple of years ago, I forget why, I think it was... We couldn't get uh, permission in time to use the church building or something like that. I forget the circumstances. But anyhow, we decided, well, let's just have it at my home. Our church is a fairly small church, and we figured if we went down and we got all of our folding chairs, we could bring them up to, to our house, and we could have a service in our driveway. So we did that. And that Good Friday, we considered the question, why do Christians call Good Friday good? After all, this is the day that... Jesus died. Jesus, whom most of us have something good to say about Jesus, this is the day that Jesus died. Even people who are not Christians, most of them, if you ask them, what do you think of Jesus? Most people will have something reasonably good to say about Jesus. I think he was a good teacher, they might say. "All right, I think he was very inspiring or... Something along those lines. Most people have something good to say about him. So, why would we call the day that he died good? Why would Christians celebrate the suffering and the death of someone like Jesus? After all, it's not, we're not celebrating the death of a bad person, we're not celebrating the death of somebody really evil. Why would Christians glory and celebrate, rehearse over and over the death of someone that we like, someone that we love, someone that we profess to worship? Why are Christians fixated on the cross, the suffering and the death of Jesus? We sang earlier tonight of Calvary. Well, you know know where Calvary is? It's the hill where Jesus was hung on a Roman cross to die. When we sang about the blood of Jesus. Why do we celebrate something that appears to be so horrific? The execution of an innocent man. Why do we celebrate the shedding of an innocent man's blood? 1 Peter 3.18, the first half of that verse which I read for you a moment ago provides the answer to these questions this line of thinking that we're going to focus in on tonight. What happened there at the cross that makes it worth celebrating? 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The reason that Christians celebrate the sufferings of Christ is, is connected to the nature and purpose of Christ's sufferings. We don't merely celebrate that Jesus suffered as if we are a cruel and sadistic bunch. Rather, we celebrate Christ's sufferings because of the purpose for which they happened and the goal that they accomplished. Christ suffered Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let me explain that further, showing you five things about Christ's sufferings from the verse that I just read to you. And the first thing is this, Christ did not suffer for his own sin. He was righteous. 1 Peter 3.18 calls him righteous. Look at it again. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous the bible teaches us that jesus is the son of god who became human for our redemption he became like us like his brothers in every respect hebrews 2:17 tells us but the same book in hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 clarifies that he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, if we put those two verses together, Jesus has been made like us in every respect, yet without sin. Jesus became like us, but he did not become like us with respect to our sin. Even Pilate himself, the Roman governor who presided over. Jesus execution said after examining him before you behold I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him neither did Herod for he sent him back to us look nothing deserving of death has been done by him even these pagan governors after sitting and listening to All of the witnesses that Jesus' enemies could muster up, even they were, couldn't say anything but, look, this man is not guilty. Jesus did not die for his own sins. He wasn't put there because of something bad that he did. Why then did Jesus die if not for his own sins? Why did he die if he didn't do anything wrong? Was it just an accident? Was it just a tragedy? Was it just one more example of a bad thing happening to a good person? We see things happen all the time around us. We read in the newspaper, we watch on the news. We know our lives have even been touched by it directly. There are accidents that happen, there are tragedies that happen, things that seem senseless to us. There are what we might call bad things which happen to what we might call good people. Ultimately, that's true, for the Bible teaches us there is non-righteous, no, not one, but we understand what is meant by that. Something that happened to someone, not through any fault of their own, but just what seems to us from our vantage point to be without rhyme or reason. Was this just another case of that? No. The Bible teaches us that the crucifixion happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Jesus himself is recorded as having predicted his own crucifixion several times throughout the biblical accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The cross was no accident. God had a plan. And plans have a purpose attached to them, don't they? So what was the purpose attached to God's plan that Jesus would go to the cross? Again, 1 Peter 3.18 teaches us. We're going to keep looking back at this sentence from Scripture over and over tonight. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. We might interject there. Why? That He might bring us to God. Just an incidental note, the word might doesn't imply a mere possibility. It's just an old way of talking. Like someone years ago might say, I ate my lunch that I might have enough strength for the afternoon. It simply means in order to. You eat lunch in order to have strength for the afternoon. Jesus died in order to bring us to God. This is what it meant, what it means when it says that Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God in order to bring us to God. Christ's sufferings were not because of his own sins. He was an innocent sufferer. The Bible teaches us instead that he suffered for the sake of others in order to bring us to God. What does it mean to be brought to God? It involves the closing of a distance. The language of being brought to God implies some kind of distance between us and God. Being brought from far away to near. And being brought to God also involves reconciliation. It's a big word, but it just means that a problem between you and God has been resolved and worked out. And that everything's okay between you and God now. You see, Isaiah 59 in verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The goal of Jesus' death was to overcome this separation between us and God so that he wouldn't hide his face from us anymore and stop his ears that he might not hear. The goal of Jesus' death was that sinners would no longer be far away from God, estranged and distant from Him. But that we would be brought into loving relationship with Him. One way the Bible speaks about this is adoption. Christians were, as Ephesians 1.5 tells us, predestined for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. Another way the Bible speaks about this is birth. Christians have become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Then God uses several terms of endearment such as his bride, his treasure, his little flock, etc. throughout the scriptures to refer to his people. And all of these terms of endearment, these metaphors of adoption and being born into his family communicate to us the love of God for us, the delight of God in us, the adoration of God for his children, for his bride, for his treasure. God loves those who have been brought to him The Holy Spirit indwelling each believer further cements that connection with God. Having been brought near by the sufferings of Christ, we're no longer estranged from God. There is no longer a separation because of our iniquities. He no longer hides His face from us so that we do not hear, so, pardon me, so that He does not hear us. But rather, we are now His children, His bride his treasure, his little flock and the spirit of Christ has been poured into our hearts sealing us as God's own. This is a privilege of every believer. Romans 8 and verse 9 says anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The implication is everyone who does belong to him has the spirit of God. So we've been brought near. We've been reconciled to God. We're no longer far away. There's no longer an issue between us. We've been brought near, adopted, born into his family, welcomed. We are now his beloved. We are now his treasure, the apple of his eye, the scripture says. And we have been given his own spirit to live within us, to seal us, Now here's the part of tonight's message that's hard to hear. I've implied it already, but let me state it explicitly. We weren't simply distant from God through no fault of our own. Or simply as a function of circumstance. Like I just happened to be distant from God. Listen, before I was brought near to God through Christ Jesus... I was distant from God because of my sins. If you are here tonight and you are not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, if you are watching online and you're not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, listen, the reason that you are distant from God, the reason that there is a separation between you and God is because of your iniquities. That's what Isaiah taught us in 59 and verse 2. Your separations, or pardon me, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It was my fault that I was separate from God. It was my fault that I needed to be reconciled to him. God never wronged me. And it wasn't just the case that I was just neutral towards God and God was just neutral towards me. There was a problem in me, sin, and unbeliever, there is still an outstanding problem in you, sin, which causes separation from God and enmity with Him. After seeing, first, that Christ did not suffer for his own sin, that he was righteous. After seeing, second, that Christ suffered to bring us to God. We also see in this little sentence here in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ suffered for sins. Look at it again. Christ suffered for sins. This is because of sins. Not for the sake of sins. Christ didn't suffer for sins that sins might flourish and thrive. That's not the sense of it at all. Christ suffered because of sins. The Bible teaches us that God is holy. Part of that means that he is other, that he is in a category of one, that he is unique, that he is separate from all else that he has made. That's part of what is meant by holy. That's one sense in which the word is sometimes used. But in another sense, holy means that God is unstained from sin. Unstained by sin, He is morally perfect. The scripture even says that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He doesn't even want to see it. And so a separation necessarily occurred when Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning. They walked with God in the garden. Now they are cast out of the garden. They walked with God in the garden. Now God no longer condescends to walk with them. But God is not content to just merely separate and let us go our own way. God is not content to just live and let live like divorced persons might do in relation to one another i move on with my life she moves on with her life god is not content merely to just stop walking with adam and eve in the garden no longer to walk with them and he does his thing in heaven and we do our thing down here and live and let live god is not content with that because he is just he punishes sin If a judge had to preside over a case involving his own son, and I know that that wouldn't happen because of conflict of interest and all that kind of stuff, but just imagine that a judge had to preside over a case involving his own son. His son was the defendant. You would call that judge wicked and unjust if he held back just because the defendant was his son. If you read in the nation newspaper that... Judge Smith had presided over a case where his son, Mr. Smith Jr., had gone out and committed some kind of heinous crime, and Judge Smith had simply just let the young man go because he is his son. You would rightly call that judge wicked and unjust, and you would cry out for justice in this land, that judges would render a proper sentence condemning the guilty. A just judge would mete out the penalty due to the defendant, irrespective of who the defendant was. And this is exactly what God has done. Though we were His good creation, though He was in relationship with us in the beginning, though He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and had a good relationship with them and they with Him. When we sinned, God, as a just judge, did not hold back, but passed a just sentence upon us. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, it's what you earn. Wages are what you earn. And God is not an unjust employer who doesn't doesn't give you what you deserve at the end of the week or at the end of the month. Ephesians 5 lists a whole bunch of things that are against God's law, And then it says, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. We are under a just sentence for our sins. There is a penalty owing us, owed to us because of our sins. A picture used throughout the Old Testament for this penalty, which is the wrath that we ought to bear, God's wrath against our sins. A picture of this is a cup. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this imagery of a cup of God's wrath. And it says over and over again that God will make the nations drink the cup of his wrath. Now, Jesus prayed in the garden before his death. Let this cup pass. From me, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It was the cup of God's wrath which Jesus had to drink upon that cross. Jesus said, as it were, so to speak, I'm not quoting him directly, if there is any other way that I might bring them to God. Any other way other than drinking the cup of God's wrath. If there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's the sense of it. There is no answer recorded in the pages of Scripture from heaven. But Jesus went to the cross and had to drink the cup. And so the implicit answer was no, it is not possible. The only way that you might bring them to God is to drain that cup dry. So saying that Jesus suffered four sins is saying that he drank that cup for us. That after realizing there was no other way. After confirming with the Father in the garden that there is no other way, Jesus did not shrink back, but went on to Calvary. He took that cup and he drained every last drop that he might bring us to God. This is what it means when it says in 1 Peter 3.18 that he suffered for sins. He took the penalty in himself that we deserved for our sins. The wrath that we justly deserved was poured out on him. This is what it means that he suffered for sins. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. He drank the cup. This leads naturally to the next point. Christ suffered for the unrighteous. Again, look at 1 Peter 3.18. We're just looking at all the key phrases in this little sentence. Christ suffered for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus died as a substitute. He died as a substitute for unrighteous persons. That's us, in case you haven't put two and two together by now. We are the unrighteous that 1 Peter 3.18 is talking about. It's me. It's not just you. It is you but it's me too. I'm not better than you. It's not just you who are not members of our church. It is you, but it's also the members of our church. We are not better than you. Together, we, Adam's posterity, we are the unrighteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As I mentioned earlier, there is none righteous, no, not one. 1 John tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breach of God's commandments, doing that which God's commandments forbid. Or failing to do what God's commandments require. Someone has said that the Ten Commandments are like a plate with ten beautiful designs. Some think of God's Ten Commandments like ten plates. And it's like, well, if I break one, I still have nine of them. And that's pretty good. But someone, someone has said that a better analogy is like one plate with ten beautiful designs around the edge. And if you break one of those commandments, the plate is cracked. James tells us that if we stumble in one point, we're accountable for the whole law of God. This is the situation. We are all unrighteous because we have broken God's commands. But Jesus came to bear the punishment that we deserve to drink the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to drink it. He went there as our substitute in order that there would be no more judgment for us and that we could therefore be brought to God and that God could justly receive us instead of punishing us for our sins as soon as he lays eyes on us. Look at the love of Christ then in dying and suffering for the unrighteous. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives a great summary of the gospel. It says that God made him, that is Christ Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is great exchange that the Son of God, the perfect spotless one from heaven, would choose to embrace the pain and the suffering that we deserved. He was the righteous. He didn't have to suffer for His own sake. But he, He came and took on our suffering freely, willingly, as our substitute in order that He might bring us to God. And He gives us His righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. Theologians have called that the great exchange. The gospel. I give Jesus my sin. He takes it to the cross and bears the wrath that I'm liable to because of my sin. He gives me his righteousness and I enjoy then the acceptance with His God, with, with God that His righteousness merits. This is the great exchange. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And accomplish it, he did. Look again at 1 Peter 3.18. One last thing. It says that Christ suffered once. Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Christ suffered once. We read in the pages of scripture that he cried out from the cross, It is finished. What tone are we to read that in? Oh I'm on un- I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm struggling so much. Oh this is so difficult. I'm defeated. It is finished. Is this the tone? No. Far from it. This is the this is the statement of one who has. Come to do what he was sent into the world to do and who has successfully accomplished it. Jesus came to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And remember that plans have a purpose attached to them. And what was the purpose of the crucifixion? That he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And so... Jesus' cry of it is finished was not a cry of dejection and defeat, but a cry of victory. Now it's done. It's finished. That work which I came to do has been accomplished. I have drunk the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. I have suffered for sins. I have suffered for the unrighteous. There is no wrath remaining for those for whom I came to die. Now they may be brought to God. It is finished. This is the sense of it. The work is done. There is no more atonement to be made. There is no more propitiation to be offered unto God. There is nothing more you have to do to be brought to God. But trust in the finished work of Christ It is finished. Jesus suffered once for sins. He didn't start a process. He completed a process. Jesus didn't just do A, B, C. He got all the way to the last letter of the alphabet. He finished it. Jesus paid it all. Not Jesus put a down payment and now let me Work it off. Not Jesus paid most. Most to him I owe. Not Jesus paid it all. It is finished. Everything that Jesus set out to do at the cross, he accomplished successfully. And so he cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. So this is why Christians celebrate Christ's sufferings because of what it accomplished jesus suffered for my sins for me the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring me to god and he succeeded in that which he set out to do he suffered once he didn't start a process it doesn't have to be offered over and over again he completed a process There's a finality to his work. It's finished. And so because of what Jesus did, I have been brought near to God. I have been reconciled. I have been given his spirit as a seal that I belong to God. This is why I celebrate the cross of Christ. This is why we at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church celebrate the cross of Christ. This is why you should celebrate the cross of Christ because it's good news for sinners like us. For unrighteous people like us, gospel simply means good news. That's what the word gospel means. And what I've told you tonight is good news, isn't it? That the unrighteous might be brought to God, that sinners might be brought to God through the finished work of Christ. This is good news. It's good news the way that the discovery of a cure for cancer would be good news. But if you had cancer and a cure was discovered, it would do you no good unless you took the medicine. And so it is with Jesus and with the gospel. It is good news that Jesus came to save sinners, but the good news will do you no good until you take the medicine, so to speak. It's not enough just to know that there is a savior for sinners, but you need to lay hold of him as your savior. You need to lay hold of Jesus and say, you are not only the savior of sinners, but you are my savior. You are the savior of this sinner. You need to take hold of Jesus by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Biblically, this doesn't mean just simply acknowledging the truth that Jesus is a savior. It means trusting in him, leaning on him. This looks like a radical life reorientation toward Jesus. I'm married to a Bajan. I have dual citizenship now. I live here. I've been living here for a few years now, but I'm Canadian-born. And in Toronto, many of you know of the CN Tower, and there's a glass floor way up at the viewing deck of the CN Tower. Far above all the skyscrapers of the big city, there is a glass floor in the viewing deck. Now, it will hold, apparently, something like the equivalent weight of like 16 elephants or something like that so objectively it is strong it's going to hold you and so it is with Christ Jesus objectively he is going to hold you but when the Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved it doesn't mean remain up against the wall not venturing onto the glass floor merely knowing that it could hold you Biblically, when the Bible speaks about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it's more like, yes, you need to know the truth that Jesus will hold you, that the floor will bear up your way. But it also means getting out there onto the glass floor, really trusting that when you stand on Jesus, stand you will, that he will support you, that he's not gonna let you down, resting yourself on him and trusting yourself to him. If that glass floor broke, you're dead. There's no way you're going to survive a drop that far. And if Jesus doesn't save me, I'm going to hell. If Jesus doesn't save you, you're going to hell. But biblical faith, biblical belief is embracing not only is he the savior of sinners, Not only can he save me, but I'm going to trust him to save me. I'm going to lean on him, reorient my life towards him such that as if I really believed this gospel was true, how then would I live? And making that change, that's what what biblical belief really is. And so I urge you tonight, not just to simply be like, well, that was an inspiring message, Not simply to just go away with a different theology of the gospel. But if you have never trusted in Christ Jesus the way that I just described. Even before you leave here tonight, myself or any of the members of our church would be happy to speak with you more about this gospel. Answer any questions that you might have. And we're not into high pressure tactics, so don't worry. You can ask questions without being... accosted and pressured into a decision you don't want to make but even before you leave here tonight i would urge you to be reconciled to god to be brought near to god through christ jesus before you leave here tonight to really trust yourself to jesus to really believe that not only can he save sinners but he will save me This is the good news, that Jesus came to do just that for sinners like you, sinners like me. Don't just have it up here. Take the medicine. Apply it to yourself. Apply this good news to yourself.